has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I'm your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. First of all, I just really want to thank all my very patient listeners because I know I missed one episode. Um, there's been a lot of health stuff going on and and so I really appreciate everybody's compassion. And also I really want to give a shout out to my Patreon supporters who are really um, enabling me to kind of uh, try and release, which I've, I've been managing to do most of this year, kind of an episode every other week. One of the reasons also why the episode is late is I've had some health stuff going on, but I've also had this episode on my mind that I've been really wanting to do and that I'm doing now, which feels incredibly delicate and it feels um, kind of scary. So first of all, I guess let's start with a content note. I am going to be talking about domestic violence and sexual violence and abuse, uh, not in any graphic details, but kind of um, giving some information and sharing some of my experiences. So if you want to skip this episode, I completely understand. And or if you want to come back to this episode at another time, but I just kind of want to be really clear that there will be some of those mentions um, in this episode. And it also feels uh, kind of scary and kind of vulnerable to talk about those things, but it feels incredibly important to talk about those things. I just knew I had to, um, and it's also really nerve-wracking to be doing this. Um, So why has this episode been on my mind? Um, I... I don't know if you watch Grey's Anatomy, but I do. Um, I really love it. And there's been an ongoing storyline about domestic violence that has been really impactful um, for me. And there's also been an episode in April when it was um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month and Sexual Violence Awareness Month where there was a really powerful storyline and there was a very powerful image. And the powerful image that happened in this episode and hopefully it will not spoiler it because it's been several weeks since the episode aired, um, was this uh, coming together of uh, all of the uh, women on staff at the hospital to make one of the patients feel seen and supported. And I'm choking up even just talking about it now. I can see that image and I sobbed when that happened. (laughs) And even now, as I'm recording this, I'm kind of getting choked up and why did that image mean so much? Why did it matter so much that um, them getting choked up right now, several weeks after seeing the the episode? Um, for me, the image was so powerful because it was like this. And I'm sorry, I think I'm going to get choked up a lot in this episode. I hope that's okay with your listeners. But it feels really important to talk about this. Um it was such a powerful image of sisterhood and now sisterhood can hold people as they are um, facing um, 
the impact of sexual violence, how people can feel held and how that holding can enable healing or can enable kind of necessary medical procedures in this case for, for the storyline. But the sisterhood is really powerful. And one why it matters to me is because I do owe a debt that I think I will hold dear forever um, to what is often called kind of women's services when it comes to domestic uh, violence and sexual violence. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for those services and for this sense of sisterhood that I've experienced in the past. And potentially, I might not even be alive. And I know this sounds really dramatic, but the number of deaths that are related to intimate partner violence is really high. For example, here in this country where I live, currently called the United States, according to the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, more than half of the of women who died by homicide, um, half of those deaths are connected to intimate partner violence. And black and indigenous women generally here face much higher rates of dying by homicide. And, um, and most of those were carried by a cis male partner. But also Latinx women are most likely, um, if they're dying, but if they died by homicide, they're most likely um, to have that death be connected to intimate partner violence. And so talking, um, yeah, so it might sound dramatic to say maybe I might not even be alive, but I'm very aware as somebody who, is, who has been immersed in kind of teaching women's studies in the past and really thinking about gendered violence um, of how impactful that is. And let's not even talk about the impact of intimate partner violence on black, brown, and indigenous trans women because that impact is so evident. Every year, a Transgender Day of Remembrance, the names we read are overwhelmingly the names of black, brown, and indigenous trans women globally. And um, that is kind of undeniable that there is a connection between uh, kind of femininity and inter intimate partner violence and that impact of misogynic, misogyny and toxic masculinity uh, can be lethal. And of course, that's not to say that intimate partner violence doesn't impact masculine folks either. It's It most certainly impacts masculine folks of all genders, whether they're trans or cis. I have worked with uh, male survivors of all genders. And um, that is also important, but it's also important to put into context that often um, what is really driving kind of this gendered violence is misogyny, is a patriarchal understanding of a rigid gender binary. And, uh, and that also impacts male survivors, um, masculine survivors of all genders. So what does it all have to do with me? Why is this so impactful? Um, well, I was, I have a family history of being brought up in a household where there was domestic violence. And even now I feel like really scared to talk about it because it's one of those things where abuse, especially abuse in family of origin thrives in silence. The, and I come from a country where there's a very strong sense of, you know, dirty laundry is washed in the family. I don't know if I'm translating that right in English, but there was a very uh, strong message that those things were kind of kept in the family. I was also brought up in a country where um, there was such a thing as a delito d'onore, um, which basically means if 
social hon- social honor was considered such a value that if people murdered a family member or a spouse because they felt their honor was on the line, say there'd been some cheating or something like that, um, they were kind of protected by legislation until 1981 where when law uh, 442 kind of change of that and at that point I was about 10 years old but so as I was growing up I was getting this message that somehow feminine the life of feminine folks could be somewhat disposable and and could be in danger if uh, um, gender norms weren't respected and if social norms weren't respected and those messages were gendered there was a value that was assigned to me as somebody who was assigned female at birth and also I knew from a fairly young age that I wasn't the only one impacted because I could also see the impact of the misogyny on um, my friends who were assigned male at birth but maybe were more effeminate or queer and they were also subject to the same gender violence. You know, gender violence doesn't only have one facet even though it's undeniable that women and feminine folks, women and girls are much more impacted globally but it takes a whole system for that violence uh, to thrive and I don't want to give the impression though that it's like this was happening in Italy because um, you know somehow we are a more patriarchal country because I kind of hate that stereotype I remember when I was um, a long long time ago it wasn't called gender studies yet it was still called women's studies I was teaching women's studies in the UK and somebody asked me if I was a feminist because I came from a patriarchal country, an English uh, white person, and I was honestly really shocked because I'd actually felt I'd experienced much more patriarchal violence after moving um, to the UK than before because in Italy I'd also experienced uh, the strength of um, and the power of women in the family and that the matriarchal kind of power. Um, and moving Eden at all solved my issues around um, kind of patriarchal violence, both on a systemic level, but also on an individual level, because that was the first time that I got into a more serious and committed relationship um, with um, my first and now ex-husband for a long time. And, And that was a situation where there was domestic violence again, and I found that the violence, the, the white angle of violence that I was experiencing now in the UK was quieter in some way, but it was no less deadly. And that that violence was still very gendered, both in terms of intimate partner violence, but also on a systemic level. I was, uh, at one point I was doing a PhD in the UK and one of the professors was, um, humiliating me in public regularly about my focus being on um, feminism. I was studying uh, the experiences of disabled women in higher education in the UK at the time, and at the time I still had a pretty binary understanding of gender. Our understanding of gender really does change over time, and I'm one of those examples. Uh, you know, trans and non-binary issues weren't even on my radar. Like, I had a lived experience, but I didn't have words for it. So I was... Um, doing a PhD that was very much focused on this um, experience of disabled women in a higher education and was very gendered and was from a feminist perspective and there was this kind of pretty constant in my first year of study uh, public humiliation um, which luckily my 
uh, course mates didn't buy into, but there was definitely an attempt to isolate me, which interestingly is what happens in situations of intimate partner violence. One of the things that happen is not just the violence, it's the isolation, is the disconnection, is the making you feel like this is happening to you because somehow um, you deserve it. One of the things that happen in the ongoing storyline um, around domestic violence in Grey's Anatomy, and again, I hope I'm not spoiling it, is that one of the main characters who has experienced domestic violence in a previous relationship um, finds out, and who had been adopted, finds out that um, she has, had been given away um, after as a baby because uh, her mother had been raped. And she has this moment where she feels you know, this is my legacy. This is why that happened to me with um, my ex-husband is because I am the product of rape. I'm not the product of love. And that isolation, that that separation from common humanity is so clear. And that was another moment that really spoke to me because I was born in a context of domestic violence and um, which again, is really scary to talk about because violence wants to be quiet and happen behind closed doors. And I remember my, um, my ex-husband saying things to me like, well, I've never hit anyone before and you've been hit before, so there must be something about you and really playing on this deeply seated fear that I could control this volatility, I could control this violence that was coming on me if I was just good enough and quiet enough and kind of towed the line enough. And, and kind of isolation and control are such big parts of gendered violence. For example, he also really wasn't happy about me doing a PhD that was focused on feminism, wasn't really happy about things I was reading. and. Um, and there was a lot of isolation and control that was happening. And that isolation and control can happen in a variety of ways. And uh, even though it is gendered, we all have this very toxic binary ideas of gender deeply ingrained in us. So, for example, when I had my first uh, lesbian partner, at the time I was assigned female at birth and female identified, so it was my first same gender relationship. Yet again, I walked into a pattern where there was... Um, kind of emotional abuse when the the was isolation, which was going to escalate into more physical abuse, but I walked away from it sooner. But there was again that isolation. That isolation this time came through jealousy and through demeaning my own identity as a bisexual uh, and more femme presenting person because my partner was more butch at the time. And these are all ex partners, by the way. And um, all through this untangling all through this understanding what I'd learned about relationships and what I learned about gender growing up and what messages were okay and what messages were not okay and at the same time I'm struggling with like figuring out what my sexuality is and nothing feeling ever quite right because I hadn't finger, figured out the gender piece yet I hadn't quite um I knew that, you know, I felt like I was in drag all the time <laughs> as a, when I was presenting as feminine, but that didn't make sense to other people because it's like, no, you are assigned female at birth. So if you're dressing feminine, how can you be in drag? Drag is only for people who are assigned male at birth and then, you know, want to present as feminine. It was something that we didn't understand how complex it was at the time. And I think we now understand that complexity much better 
Um, but all through this untangling and all through this kind of surviving violence, one of the things that was holding me were my sisters. They, they were my, my female friends. You know, like I said, I was teaching women's studies at the time. It wasn't called gender studies yet. And I was starting to be also immersed in more lesbian uh, culture. And this strong sense of belonging, this strong sense of we have each other. We are not alone. I wasn't alone. You know, the first time I walked away from my abusive um, first marriage, the first counseling and therapy that really worked for me came from services that were specifically devoted to domestic violence. And and on a, a practical financial level, I was able to access safe housing uh, through organizations that were dedicated to people who had survived domestic violence and had walked away from it. And so I was the direct beneficiary of a strong sense of sisterhood and a strong sense of you're not alone, we have each other, you don't have to do this alone. And um, I started to feel a little bit rocky in the sense of sisterhood when I first um, really came out as bisexual. When I first came out, I did say, I'm bisexual, um, I'm attracted to masculine people of all genders mostly and to some femme folks, um, but it didn't feel entirely safe to say that and I wasn't really interested in dating cis men at the time, so I kind of was more immersed in lesbian culture and my bisexuality was quieter, my partners knew about it and it was often, there was a lot of biphobia on the queer scene at the time, so my bisexuality was often um, really seen as um, something that um, set me apart from the the lesbian sisterhood in some way. And when I started dating uh, a cis man after a few years of being out on the queer scene, I definitely experienced a significant loss um, of community. I lost most of my friends. Some of my friends stuck by me, but that number was very small, um, as in two or three people stood by me. That was it. And, um, you know, apart from those exceptions, and also I was connected at the time through to... Um, uh, queer women in Italy for an email list and and those folks stood by me those uh, relationships really survived my dating this man in a you know for the first time in a few years and um, so that was starting to there was there were starting to be some cracks in my experience of sisterhood at that time. And then eventually after that, I start, I came out as genderqueer, I kind of came more in bi community where there were kind of more trans and non-binary folks and genderqueer folks. And that really opened up for possibilities for me. So I first came out as genderqueer, then as transmasculine. And now I really feel that transmasculine and non-binary are really labels that work pretty well for me. Um, but that crack, um, it's a little bit like the, a wound that kind of has healed. But sometimes, you know, when the weather changes, I don't know if some of you maybe have like fractures or scars in your body that start to hurt or itch when the weather changes. And it really does feel like um, there's still some tenderness there in some ways. 
and when I did come out um, kind of more as masculine presenting and started to use he uh, pronouns at first and now I use he and they, um, there was an invitation to step into brotherhood, right? If there is a sisterhood, there's obviously a brotherhood and a sense of belonging to masculinity. But I really didn't feel that that would meet my needs and it wasn't who I was. I remember one of my uh, colleagues really wanted to affirm me and just doing this you know, big slaps on the back, um, a work that were meant to be affirming of my masculinity, but A, they hurt because <laughs> um, I'm disabled and I have a bunch of like chronic health issues like fibromyalgia that don't respond very well uh, to sudden uh, and unexpected impact. And also my complex PTSD didn't do very well with that. But B, I fought so hard to break out of people's expectations of me around gender that I really didn't want to just kind of slide into another box just because I was invited into the box and it seemed easy to swap once you know one siblinghood for another to go from sisterhood to brotherhood that didn't really fit either and so eventually I ended up living in this liminal space um and it is different now to talk about some experiences that are often talked about as women's experiences, women experiences of uh, what my body uh, does, for example, you know, experiences around reproductive justice, experiences around um, parenting and pregnancy, experiences around sexual assault, sexual violence and domestic violence, those are things that are talked about in very gendered way. And while there is value in highlighting the very, very gendered nature, there's no denying that kind of our patriarchal culture and our misogyny, our fear of the feminine really drives um, this violence. It, it is very different to be in this liminal space. And, and trans and or non-binary communities have been amazing. I've been this place where um, I can be vulnerable. I can find other people who share some of those experiences. But of course, it takes a lot more um, talking, time, and vulnerability to find the other people who share those experiences with me, right? It might not be obvious who shares those experiences with me and who doesn't. Who are the trans feminine folks who might share some of the experiences around sexual violence and trans masculine folks too and who shares experiences around parenting around kind of disability and reproductive justice all of this kind of different issues that in dominant culture are very neatly packaged as women's issues right there's this neat package it's very attractive you know that we can talk about women's health and violence against women's and girls without ever troubling that gender binary which is part of the problem, you know, which is part of the root of this gendered violence. And that's the thing that sometimes drives me a little, um, drives me a little wild is to think about how much those same services, those same, that same passion that drives people to offer vital life-saving services, which I benefited from, um, and, and yet that those services are packaged just simply as women's services 
kind of reifying, um, reinforcing, uh, reproducing that same settler colonial patriarchal gender binary that is at the root of so much of this violence. Um, and part of me still belongs in the sisterhood, even despite all of those complexity, despite all those feelings of alienation that I've experienced over the years, despite the fact that my very being as a transmasculine non-binary person is seen as a betrayal by some folks in the sisterhood, part of me owes this debt and belongs in the sisterhood, belongs in a sisterhood of people of all genders where we share an understanding of how a rigid gender binary um, that is rooted in kind of patriarchal misogynistic thinking hurts everybody. And, and also I've come to this place where it's okay to belong in many homes. It's okay to belong in trans community and non-binary community. And it's okay to belong to brotherhood for some aspects. And it's okay to belong to sisterhood in some aspects. And although I do long for a siblinghood that dismantles this notion of the rigid gender binary, it's also okay to feel like I belong nowhere and everywhere as smarter people than I have said before. And also, I don't want to uh, run the risk of romanticizing this idea of sisterhood as if it was not complicated, as if it wasn't deeply um, rooted also in white supremacy, for example. So much of feminism um, is kind of, in Anglo country, is rooted in kind of white feminism and is problematic on so many levels. You know, in the sisterhood, we're still confronting issues of racism and ableism and class and transphobia and cisgenderism. So I really want to remember and remind myself and remind the readers and remember the complexities of sisterhood while also having this deep gratitude and by, while also being deeply moved by moments like in that episode in Grey's Anatomy that I've talked about at the beginning. Um, sisterhood is complex and I think increasingly we're trying to engage with this understanding in more complex ways and I keep longing for siblinghoods that are less binary gendered and I don't know what those look like yet. Um, you know, I'm almost 50 and I feel in some way I'm also deeply rooted in that binary and I wonder if that's also part of my longing for the sisterhood, this belonging to something, this belonging, being a woman who belongs to women, this, um, this sense of home. And there is a new home that I think we can create. And I think that actually a lot of young people are creating that it's much more expansive, a home where we do not need to feel supported and alienated at the same time as I did uh, watching that episode. So dear listeners, here you have it. This has been the episode that's been on my mind and my heart and that I was really afraid and I'm honestly really afraid to release in the world, but one of the things that I'm learning is that those are all things I've processed for a long time in therapy. So even though I'm still getting choked up, these are not things that are new that I'm talking about. These are just things that I want to share with the world 
because I think maybe somebody else out there might be experiencing what I'm experiencing and I want them and I want you if you're listening to this to feel less lonely to feel like there is a much more complex experience of gender um, that we can tell ourselves and each other so thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for supporting um, this podcast and until next time please keep supporting one another and keep noticing your longing and belonging and um, keep knowing that we're not alone no matter what our gender no matter what our experiences somebody else out there will share some of those experiences with us and thank you so much to all my patreon supporters once more and if you want to learn more about gender um, I would recommend my book that Meg John Barker and I have written, How to Understand Your Gender. I'll plug it at the end of every episode. And we have a new book coming out this month in May called Life is Binary, which starts from talking about sexuality and gender, but then really moves into talking about relationships and bodies and, and emotions and thinking in less binary ways and I cannot wait to see what the world thinks about this other book baby that Meg John Barker and I have put out into the world. So thanks again for listening. Take care of yourselves and one another.